From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. Today's Blue Sky guest tells her story from the coast of Maine, but the work she's doing was inspired by her upbringing in Pennsylvania and has ramifications for the future of coastal communities around the world. Brianna Warner is the CEO of Atlantic Sea Farms and has dedicated her life to doing well by doing good. She's passionate about her adopted home state of Maine and working with partner farmers to help create a more resilient and thriving coast. She and her team have forged a new path for seaweed aquaculture in the U.S. by working with fishermen to grow kelp as a climate change adaptation strategy and building national demand for that kelp. The ASF team and partner farmers now account for the majority of line-grown kelp grown in the U.S. and are proving that a model that puts farmers, planet, and people first can drive an entirely new way of producing food. Brianna has followed a mission-driven path that brought her to kelp, including serving several tours as a diplomat in the U.S. Foreign Service, starting and selling a wholesale bakery focused on employing newly resettled refugees and creating the first economic development programming suite at the Maine-based Island Institute. I hope you enjoy this Blue Sky conversation with Atlantic Sea Farm CEO, Brianna Warner, as much as I did. Brianna Warner, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. Hi, Bill. How's it going? It is going great, and it's terrific to have you on as a guest. I am very familiar with your work and with Atlantic Sea Farms, but I know a lot of people listening today might not be aware of what you all do at Atlantic Sea Farms. Can you summarize what your organization is all about and and what you do? So uh, we are a first-to-market seaweed aquaculture company based here in Maine. So what does that mean? Um, Seaweed aquaculture is fairly new here in the United States, and in fact, in 20. 18, there was only around 30,000 pounds grown in the entire country. And seaweed aquaculture is open ocean growing of seaweed. And your, your, your listeners may be really familiar with seaweed, or they might think that they're not, but they actually are. So if your customers have ever eaten sushi, if they've ever eaten those ubiquitous seaweed snacks or have had that bright green seaweed salad at, um, you know, a Japanese restaurant, then they've had seaweed and um, kelp is the specific type of seaweed that we're growing here. And up until 2018, when I mentioned that 30,000 pound uh, number, which fed very few people, about 98% of that was imported from Asia and used mostly in food. In the past three years, um, we have really invigorated the seaweed aquaculture industry in the United States. And we're leading the way by working with fishermen here in Maine, Um, to help diversify their income in the face of climate change, grow kelp in their off-season, and then we turn it into delicious products grown right here in the United States that are regenerative because kelp aquaculture makes the ocean better, but that also help mitigate some of the effects of climate change locally and help coastal communities adapt to climate change while giving customers some of the most nutritious food on the planet. And what is that 30,000-pound number today? Uh, last year, we uh, we ourselves landed about a million pounds of kelp. 
Atlantic Sea Farms only. Yep. That's incredible. Yeah. Okay. So, so I, uh, I'm pretty familiar with your background and if I had just read your resume, you know, the first half of it, I would not have necessarily guessed you would wind up in Maine doing kelp farming. It, it, can you explain how your background led you here? You're not from Maine. You're not from the coast even. Um, yeah. how did you wind up where you are today? What's that story? I'm, I'm what Mainers call from away. Um, yes. you know, it's, a, that makes it, two of us. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you know, for me, my background is in economic development. I was a diplomat for a number of years. Um, and I moved to Maine because of family reasons. I'm not from here, but I'm from a community in Pennsylvania. That's really focused on that was at one point really focused on natural resource based energy industries and has seen the decline of that in a pretty significant way, as have all kind of coal communities. Um, and that was, you know, before I was born. And so I grew up in a community with not a lot of hope and not a lot of economic prosperity and uh, quite a bit of, um, you know, uninspired community to grow up in for a number of reasons, mostly because people have lacked hope because of the loss of an industry that, quite frankly, is never coming back and the lack of, loss of opportunities for them to succeed in the future. So in many ways in that community, succeeding is getting out. And, you know, coming and and so being in the foreign service, being a diplomat, having the opportunity to really think about economic development differently because of my background, because of what I saw, you know, I spent a lot of time in the foreign service really deeply focused on figuring out ways that economic development can happen in communities before there is catastrophe or before there is crisis. But uh, you know, for the worst, quite frankly, our our foreign policy does not exist around preventing problems. It it revolves around fixing them once they've gotten so bad that we can no longer ignore them. Sure. That's true in our healthcare system, for example. Say, that rings, like we don't talk about nutritive familiar. food and preventative exercise. We talk about solving things with deep medication. Um, we don't talk about the endemic health issues around poverty. We talk about medication. Um, and so, you know, it's just not in the American mindset in so many ways to kind of look at preventative uh, ways that we can we can approach potential future problems. And when I moved to Maine, it became really apparent to me that there there was huge challenges on our coast, but also equally as exciting opportunities. And the challenge being, we have the Gulf of Maine is warming faster than ninety eight percent of oceans in the entire world. And I just, I want to pause on that because we have this beautiful, clean, cold water. We don't have a big population. It's not like we're sending out a bunch of greenhouse gases here in Maine. It is the Arctic ice melt that is happening as a result of global climate change that is creating a confluence of currents that is making it so that the Gulf of Maine is warming faster than 98% of oceans in the world. So what does that mean? It doesn't mean just this like, increased spike of heat over time. It's a crazy amount of volatility within that spike. And so, yes, there's always an upward trend. But in the meantime, last year, for example, it was two degrees Celsius warmer than has ever been recorded in the Gulf of Maine during the middle of the winter, during those winter months. And so it, does that mean that this year is going to be that way? No, not necessarily. And that's just what's so terrifying is there is zero predictability what we do know is there are a lot of species in the Gulf of Maine that are no longer going to survive at the rate that they are today as that water changes. And lobster, 
which is the dominant industry in the state of Maine, is key among those species that is going to be deeply affected, particularly within their larval stage, and will not be able to exist in the way and in the volume that they are now. That is critical here in Maine because we are a lobster monoculture. I think when people think of Maine, they think of lobster or pine trees. Right. We, right. We'll still have those. Throwing trees. a moose here or there. Right. Pretty much lobster. <laughs> but they think of they think of lobster, and that's not unfounded. That is deeply founded in the fact that we are a monoculture. It is what we depend on, and in many coastal communities, is the only job. So those are the challenges. The opportunity to me, is very compelling. One, we have more coastline than the state of California. Our dependence on the lobster industry, which is an owner-operator fishery, means we have more than 4,000 lobster license holders that run their own business. They have their own boat, not like Massachusetts and Canada, where it's kind of fishing fleets. Here it is indeed, you must be on your boat in order to fish it. So it is an owner-operator fishery. These, it's a generational fishery, so people care very deeply about if that is still a fishing industry that their kids and their kids' kids can go into, because that is, for all intents and purposes, how the you know how the lobster industry licensing system tends to work because of an apprenticeship um, entrance that allows for children of fishermen to be able to get in easier, um, and we also have a bunch of these lobster boats that are not doing a whole lot in the winter months because there are no other fisheries and the lobsters move offshore during the winter. They have deep knowledge of the water. They have all of the equipment to be fantastic kelp farmers. And they're all looking for diversification strategies in the face of a very volatile lobster industry. So are all lobstermen saying climate change is real? We need to do something now. Absolutely not. But what they are saying is they're very smart business owners and they're saying, man, 20 years ago, we were fishing for shrimp. We were getting cod. We had a five or six fisheries. Now all of our eggs are in one basket and this is terrifying. Even if there wasn't climate change, it's terrifying. And so we've now worked to, we have now expanded our supply network to 27 partner farmers almost all of whom are fishermen, a few are aquaculturists, so people who are growing mussels, for example. And as a, and this is sort of a multi-trophic uh, opportunity for them. And we're producing value-added goods like a fermented seaweed salad, sea veggie burgers, a bunch of things like that, that are in over 2000 grocery stores across the country. But additionally, we're doing a lot of work in, ingre- in the ingredient space. So kelp powders, kelp flakes, those kind of things that are in green drinks, nutraceuticals, pet food, your crackers, it's kind of all over the place. So our our whole business is predicated around this idea that there can be hope on the water. Fishermen can be the leaders in climate change action um, through creating one of the most climate-friendly foods available to humans. And we can do that here in the Gulf of Maine and prove that there is, that climate change adaption is possible when we are leaning into the human capital that we really feel like the American population has. Brianna does a great job explaining how the main fishing industry has found itself facing their current challenges. And that was some quality Maine trivia there, with the fact that Maine has more coastline than California. While we're at it, did you know that Maine is the only state whose name is one syllable? And the only one with one bordering state? 
Bonus points if you can name that state without using Google. More valuable learning for you, courtesy of the Blue Sky Podcast. But I digress. Back to Brianna. I always enjoy speaking with entrepreneurs at the early stages of a growing business. The numbers she cites here on the growth of seaweed aquaculture are striking. From 30,000 pounds just five years ago to 1 million today. Also, it's interesting to hear Brianna talk about how she came to her current work. Great leaders and builders often have the ability to see patterns, especially when applying historical lessons to today. Brianna didn't grow up in Maine, but seeing what happened to coal and steel industries in her home state of Pennsylvania and how it affected the population there led her to detect parallels with the lobster business in her adopted state of Maine. And rather than wait for the worst impacts of a warming Gulf of Maine to hit the community, drawing from her background in economic development through Atlantic Sea Farms, Brianna is proactively helping diversify opportunities for the lobster industry. And note the natural optimism in Brianna Warner's vocabulary. When she says the word challenge, it's almost always soon followed by opportunity. And it's easy to see why she's having such great success breaking into this vital industry in Maine. Turning back to our conversation, I asked Brianna to explain Atlantic Sea Farm's business model and how it is that they find interested lobstermen and how they partner with them. When we first started, I think we really focused on people we knew, we respected, people we saw as leaders in the industry that could really be good ambassadors for this new industry. You know, so we we really kind of leaned into the people that I I had very deep connections with over a number of years and really learned from them. You know, what do you need from us? We create free seeds. We give those seeds for free to those farmers. They're not free to us. Obviously we create seeds. We give them to for free to the farmers to mitigate their risk. We provide technical assistance for lease support for them to figure out how to grow their farms. We go out for first seeding, first harvest. And then we also arrange all of the logistics So by the time they, you know, when they get to the dock with the kelp, we are picking up in the trucks, we're driving it around, we're doing all the logistics, we're purchasing the harvest bag, and we guarantee to purchase everything that they grow. And so the risk mitigation for them is extremely high. So you're the guaranteed market. You're you're a buyer. We're a guaranteed market whether we have a place to send it or not. (laughs) Right. And where, where does the majority of your stuff get sent? You mentioned all the various products. Are you making these products yourselves? Are you selling to the next stage in the, how does that yeah. work? I think most people don't realize when they go to the store and buy like their popcorn, that company who made the popcorn, the vast majority of the time doesn't have any connection with the people who grew that corn. Certainly has no idea where the seeds came from. They probably don't come anywhere near a processing facility. They don't touch the product. And there's two or three of them that are basically a marketing firm for a product that's on the market that no one's ever touched or felt. They may be the smart ones. Yeah. We <laughs> we yeah. uh, ha- are inc- vertically integrated to the extreme. So we produce the seeds. We go out and hunt for parent tissue for producing the seeds. So we know the bed that the seeds came from because we are the ones who did it. We produce the seeds in our state-of-the-art nursery in our 27,000-square-foot building in Biddeford, Maine. We incubate them for 40 days. We deploy them. Um, We give them to our partner farmers. We help them deploy those seeds. We go and do farm audits about two or three times a month. 
the harvest starts in the spring. So it's about a six month grow out. The harvest starts between April and June, depending on the ge geography of the farm. We inspect the bags, we pick them up on our trucks, we drive them back to our facility in Biddeford and we process every piece of kelp that people eat. So um, mine is, I'm, I, I should say, except our, our powder product, which we have done elsewhere, but everything, so our burgers, our fermented seaweed salad, our kelp cubes, our ready cut kelp, all of that is done right here in our processing facility. Incredible. So you're creating economic opportunity for the lobstermen and, and obviously for, for yourselves at Atlantic Sea Farms. You're also doing things that are great for the environment. Can you describe what is it about kelp farming and even even versus traditional land farming? Why is why is kelp farming such a good thing uh, for the environment? So if you think about anything else you eat, lettuce, tomatoes, anything like, you know, don't even talk about beef. Beef is a whole nother thing. But if you're even going down to what you would think is like minimal impact, it still uses arable land. It's often tilled, which is we know now one of the biggest, you know, one a, a significant, if not one of the biggest, most significant contributors to carbon release from the water and from the from the ground into the atmosphere. It's often grown with pesticides. It needs a ton of fresh water. It's anything that you eat is just incredibly resource intensive. And when something's resource intensive, it's environmentally degrading most of the time. Kelp, on the other hand, is grown with no inputs, no fresh water, no arable land. It's it, all of the equipment that is used to put in the water to grow it then gets taken out of the water every year. No fertilizer, right? I mean, no fertilizer. Yeah. And while it's growing, it removes carbon and nitrogen from the water column. So kelp eats carbon and nitrogen and eat is a very, I'm sure our seaweed scientists and staff would be just horrified that I just said that. But it, it thrives off of sunlight, nitrogen, and carbon. In a pretty big way, right? I mean, it's... It does. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it uptakes all of that that carbon. So when you think about excess carbon in the atmosphere, which we all know is a huge issue, when that hits the ocean, the ocean absorbs that carbon. And that changes the pH of the ocean. It makes it more acidic. And we've all heard of ocean acidification we still, as a scientific community, do not know all of the effects of ocean acidification because nobody has studied every animal in the ocean and how it's going to react to ocean acidification. But we do know that shell-bearing organisms see massive degradation when the ocean is more acidic. So by that, I mean take a Coca-Cola and pour it on some metal and you're going to see that metal erode. Think about the same thing happening to a mussel shell or an oyster shell. And so what kelp does by uptaking carbon and nitrogen is what we call it the kelp halo effect. I didn't call it that. The scientific community did. So it's not like a cool word I made up. But that halo effect, basically, if you plant shellfish within that halo, there is abundant evidence that, in fact, that carbon mitigation locally is making shellfish almost double as strong in just a six-month period. Shellfish shells and also yeah and also making that meat much more robust because it, the the animal isn't putting as much effort into rebuilding its shell with those shellfish and that's just the only thing that we've studied we see this massive positive effect so not only is it not taking up arable land no pesticides no fresh water yada 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 it's also making the ocean better while it's growing and when we remove it from the water we're removing that carbon now if anyone says that's sequestration you know they're lying. It isn't. 
you know, there's, there's, you know, mitigation, local mitigation, grand mitigation, climate change reversal, climate change adaptation. We are not reversing climate change here. What we are doing is allowing people to adapt, but also when you look at your plate, if you're replacing lettuce with kelp, if you're replacing anything with kelp, you are making a positive contribution to the environment. A key to the success of Atlantic Sea Farms is a listen-first mentality. By approaching the business this way, Brianna and her colleagues figured out that a big challenge for the lobster community was risk. And they figured out ways to get lobster to participate by providing seeds free of charge and serving as a guaranteed buyer. And it's clear that Atlantic Sea Farms is motivated by a mission, encouraged by a new type of farming with so many positive environmental factors that set it apart from traditional land agriculture. And not only that, kelp happens to be really good for you. And I asked Brianna to walk us through some of those benefits. I actually have to always get out my kelp for health little document here. <laughs> um, so uh, seaweed is one of the best sources of iodine that there is. We don't get a lot of, you know, when we were younger, there was iodized salt. You don't see that anywhere anymore. Right. Sea salt. Right. That's right. People are using sea salt. So people aren't getting enough iodine in their diet. And iodine is needed to make thyroid hormones help regulate metabolism. You see a lot of women, particularly, you know, pre-menopausal and post-menopausal women who have massive thyroid issues because they're not getting enough iodine in their diet. And in fact, as a point of this, um, in Korea, you're supposed to eat seaweed soup every day while you're pregnant, while you're pregnant. And on the birthday, on your birthday every year to nod to your mother, you're supposed to eat seaweed soup celebrating your mother for your birthday because they see kelp as such an important part of regulating thyroid health while you're pregnant, nursing, and postmenopausal. It's it's also got 20 different vitamins and minerals like iron, potassium, calcium, vitamin A, vitamin B12, magnesium, soluble fiber. It helps with blood sugar regulation, heart health for anti-inflammatory compounds and antioxidants, gut health. So it's a pretty amazing product. It's one of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet. Plus, if you add to it going out and getting our fermented seaweed salad or our fermented seaweed kimchi that we call sichi or spicy seaweed salad, uh, which is just out on the market right now at, at Whole Foods. You know, any of those three are also traditionally barrel fermented. So on top of the kelp, the benefits of the kelp itself, we're adding massive probiotic benefits through many of our leading products. Incredible. So, so let's talk about you a little bit. You have broken into a, we talked about you being from away. Um, this is a very, the industry that you've been in, lobstering, seafood, coastal Maine, anything pretty, uh, white male, traditional, you know, very suspicious of people from away, that sort of thing. How have you broken in persevered and been such an incredible success? How do you describe that? And how much of that would you say is just your own innate sense of can do optimism, hopefulness, that sort of thing? I get asked this question quite a bit, particularly by people who are looking to start similar industries elsewhere. And it's often by the science community. You referenced a little bit earlier, like, fishermen and scientists not agreeing at a table. I think it's, I think honestly, it's the scientists problem, not the fishermen's problem. I think we attribute some sort of like non-movement to traditional industries when in fact people just don't want to be talked down to. 
People don't want to be told what to think. This is universal. Could you imagine if I came to you, Bill, and said, the way you're thinking about the world is wrong. I went to MIT for a PhD in biology, which by the way, I didn't. And therefore, like you, if you don't see it my way, then you're just wrong. And, and what would you say to me? You'd say, you know what? Like, get lost. You wouldn't want to have a conversation. I think so much in climate discussion and in and, and what we're seeing on the national stage right now is people being exhausted by being spoken down to. It's unconscionable to me that we don't just see people as people, people who need to feed their families, people who worry about the same. We all worry about the same things every morning. But I, I think that our ability to connect with fishermen is based purely around the fact that we don't see it as connecting with fishermen. <laughs> we see it as, hey, like you're really good at the ocean, at working on the ocean. You're really good at it. I'm really good at marketing and selling things and I'm good with food. Let's figure out how we can catalyze both of our strengths to do something really cool together. And notice in there, I didn't say, hey, climate change is real and the lobster industry is going to really take a hit in 20 years. So you should do this. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. and, it, and get your head out of the sand. Get your head you, out of the sand. Know. Like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> like, also, that's not what they're doing. They know. And I think I've seen so many people, I've seen so many scientific conversations go incorrectly because scientists just assume that they know more than the people that are working on the water every single day. I guarantee you that every one of these fishermen that we work with knows more about the ocean than the people who are studying it. Absolutely. And, and another thing too, that I'm sure you're sensitive to is just how hard their work is. I, when I first moved to Maine, I had an office that I could see the waterfront. I was quite close to it actually. And I could see lobster and fishermen come in when it was five degrees out. I could see guys on the back of Harbor fish, gutting fish with no gloves on in five degrees. You know, just, just now there's a missing lobsterman here in Maine. That's there's being, it is dangerous. It is, it is challenging and it is constant. And, you know, past a lot of their fuel, their expenses are fuel that are out of their control. It's just a brutally tough business. And again, to be. Yeah. And they're like, I think that's a key point though, Bill, is they're running their own business exactly. as well. They're paying their they taxes. They're the taxes. They have absolutely. to have the fixed asset costs. They are managing, like, it's not just that they're fishing, they're fishing. And then they have to come back and manage their business. appreciate what Brianna says here about how she broke into this industry. First and foremost, she treated people with respect. People, she says, don't want to be talked down to. And she makes the honest assessment here that throughout the history of the challenging relationship between the science and fishing communities, it's often been a condescending attitude from scientists that's been the biggest problem. And I think the mindset Brianna describes can help us all during this time of polarization an uncivil discourse. To maintain a sense of hope and optimism, we do well to really listen to people with whom we disagree and to treat them with a respectful and open mind. 
Getting back to my Blue Sky conversation, I wanted Brianna to talk about where her drive and determination come from. I'm sure you've had all kinds of challenges and difficulties and people saying you can't do it. What is it about you that that keeps you persevering in this work? Um, I was about to say, I don't think anyone's ever told me I can't do it, but that's likely because of the my... my Maybe behind uh, your back. My, yeah, yeah. They might say, <laughs> and they might even be saying it to me and I just don't hear it because I refuse to. <laughs> there you go. Um, I mean, I would say like to your earlier point about white male industries, I have never for a second felt othered or spoken down to or different than our partner farmers ever put me in a room with venture capitalists and I will be spoken down to by white men every time. And I think, um, there are a lot of studies out there and there are a lot of statistics that are gut wrenching key among them is that women run 50% of businesses in the United States women-run businesses received less than 2% of all funding last year. Women, even though their credit savviness is about 30% better than men, receive 50% less loans with worse terms. Women looking for equity money, that's that 2% static statistic. So it's always amazing to me sort of people's feeling like oh how do you break into fishermen like all these like white dudes and I'm like really because like they want you to be the only thing they care about is are you honest are you kind do you respect what I'm doing and do we have a way that we can work together to both make money like that's it venture capitalists do you have the swagger to do this thing do you think that, I mean, are you from a rich family? What are your, you know, there's this thing in venture and your listeners might not know this, but there is this term for seed funding for the first round of funding. You can't get the next round of funding without this round of funding. You know what they call it, Bill? And you know this, but your listeners not know. Friends and family. Exactly. It is the most toxic. Yeah term I have ever heard in my life. Yeah. Raise a friends and family round. Yeah. So raise a friends and family round. Okay, cool. So what you're saying already is if you want to run your own business, you better have rich, rich friends and family. Cause if you don't end of story. So we're already taking out 97% of people in the world, in the state, in the country. So I, you know, I, I was lucky. I was was lucky. I'm not lucky. I'm again, I'm not part of that statistic because I came from a family, but I was on the board of Atlantic Sea Farms because I was working with the fishing industry. And the board said, we need you to take over this company after a founder transition. So the friends and family round was already done. You know, I was moving into this next round. We already had traction. We built traction from there. The biggest hurdle for me has not been raising money because I've raised it. I am really defying those statistics. But it's just every day walking into a world dominated by very wealthy white men who set the rules. The game is rigged. Yep. Yep. The game is rigged. And we, we've been very, very successful in running completely against that tide. 
And I'm very proud of that. And I see that as part of my role is to show women that this can be done to when there was a Harvard study last year that a man will get asked in the same, by the same investors in the same room, what's called promotional questions. So things like, you know, how do you see yourself competing in this, in this market where there are already a lot of brands competing? The women will be asked the same question, but like this, how could you possibly compete against the likes of General Mills? <laughs> same question. Right. Subtle. Yep. And Subtle it's, it, yeah. and there it's, it's every day and it's, and every day you kind of close your door, you take a deep breath or things like, Hey, I know you look good, but, uh, you know, how can you manage a business? And, and it's just, it's, it's at this point, I think I'm fairly well known in the communities for never putting up with that anymore. But, um, I think that that's just something to note. You know, this is something I always like to say when people ask me about some of the challenges is just like, let's name them, let's own them and let's show that you can overcome them. Because the reality is I have the best shareholders I could possibly imagine. I have an amazing board that by the way, is three women and two men. I have, I, I get to see if someone's a jerk within the first five minutes <laughs> rather than, rather than in the first, rather than after they've made an investment. And I have this incredible group of people that are really rallied behind Atlantic Sea Farms, but that doesn't negate the fact that this is what a lot of women are experiencing. And um, I hope that we can be a beacon of hope that that doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way. Speaking once again about treating members of the fishing community with respect, it's striking to hear Brianna answer my question about being a woman in this male-dominated industry by describing it as far easier than working with the male-dominated world of venture capital investing. Those of us from more privileged backgrounds would do well to try to understand the barriers facing people with less means and fewer connections with affluent friends or family to finance startups. Brianna's optimistic attitude and determination to not back down in the face of these challenges is inspiring, as is her desire to help other women staring down similar obstacles. Next, I wanted Brianna to talk about the potential size of the opportunity that Atlantic Sea Farms is going after. We started out talking about 30,000 pounds to a million how big can this get? How big could Atlantic Sea Farms, what, what's on your horizon? And then this industry generally, where else is this happening? You mentioned Asia, you mentioned Korea. I know that it, it, the huge seaweed consumption in Asia sounds like growth here in the United States. Where's this going? How big could this be? I would say, you know, I think for me in the short term, I'd like to see a hundred farmers in Maine growing a hundred thousand pounds by 2030. So that's 10 million pounds. But it's going to, and, and we're starting to work in Alaska. We now have a partner farmer in Rhode Island. You know, for me, I think how I would measure success is sort of threefold. One, the business is profitable, which we're not there yet, but that's not abnormal for a third year business. Like it's not like we're behind the curve there. Um, it just takes a lot to get, you know, we have good revenue, we're growing year over year, but until we can make sure that that EBITDA number is, uh, on the positive, you know, that's going to take a second. And I don't think we've proven anything until we can show that we can do well by doing good. And we have to be able to prove that and we haven't proven it yet. 
The second piece would be that fishermen start to look to seaweed farming as a viable supplemental income to smooth out the volatility of the lobster industry. And the third would be that we see our model replicated in other industries. And so does that mean 10 million pounds? Does that mean 60 million pounds? Does that mean 3,000 farmers? Does that mean 50 farmers? Like, I'm not sure when we reach those three milestones, but as soon as I have, you know, a hemp farming company call me and say like, hey, what about this? Or, you know, name name of a superfood that we don't know about yet. You know, let's say oysters, right? Like this could be replicated in oysters. This could be replicated in a lot of different ways. I think that if we see those three things happen, I'll know that we've been a success. And with seaweed, how much of it now is a a demand issue or a supply issue? In other words, is, is part of your challenge trying to get more people to replace lettuce with, with or is that is the demand there and it's a question, a little bit of both? It's a little bit of both. I mean, I think we do, we can, we have built to the point where we can now meet all the demand that we have and then some. Having said that, we are in this ingredient work that we're doing that flips pretty quickly with, you know, these are 18 to 24 month leads. And some of these are with giant pet companies or giant nutraceutical companies. And then if they are able to kind of get through their formulation and do the clinical trials that they need and everything else, like all of a sudden we're like, oh crap, we need more, more supply. So I think it's, you know, the, it's interest. It's very interesting to me to talk to like investors or other business people who don't quite understand that it's a push or pull. Like if you are making canned coffee, I don't know anything about the coffee industry. So if what I'm about to say is completely incorrect. I apologize in advance, but from what I understand about the coffee industry, if you want coffee beans, you can find coffee beans. So you're not sort of planning unless you have a very specific supply chain, you know, input, like I only get organic seeds from this, this organic coffee from this one farm in Ethiopia, which very few people do. You can basically spot buy every year for the demand or spot buy every month. I have to put in partner farmer leases now, my team does, for the demand we're going to need in three years because it'll take state agencies a year or two to even allow for the lease to happen. Right now it's three years, but I hope that they're working on it and getting it down. And then we have to deploy the seeds in September and then I won't get anything out of it until May, June. So it's, it's a little bit of all of it, but it's, it's pretty nuanced as to how we have to make sure that we're, we're working on that supply chain. And you said nutraceuticals before. That's another, is my understanding, there's, there's seaweed on your plate on top of your salad, but there's also, it goes into, could go into medicines, could go into things like toothpaste and other things, right? There's a whole other, and, and is that a market that you're supplying as well? Or is it, are you more just sort of food products? No, we do. As far as food, our products are for food. We also do have some food partners that we work with on the ingredient side. So um, an example might be like Mind Blown Seafood uses our powder in their uh, plant-based scallops, for example. Um, who else, uh, for plant-based scallops, wait, go back. They sell yeah. plant-based scallops. Yeah, they're great. It's a little, called little, little hockey seafood. puck shape. Yeah. They take, they're great too. Um, wow. okay. there's, you know, there's a lot of kind of food input companies that use it in, in a little bit of percentage for the most part, our powders and flakes go into things like, um, thorn has a green juice, uh, like a, like a, um, energy green juice, 
that people make with it. Navitas has a super food, super greens blend where they use our kelp. We have a partner in Earth Animal who does uh, dog kelp jerky um, with our kelp inputs. They do a kibble. Amazing. So it's kind of it kind of spans the board. We also have a bioplastics partner, Lollyware, uh, where they work with our kelp um, as an input to their bio-based straws. So really, we are we are um, input uh, agnostic. Sure. Um, but really excited about the opportunity. You know, anywhere we can get in seaweed makes the thing better. So if someone's listening right now and they want to support your company and walk into a Whole Foods or a store or some of these things, I wouldn't know that Atlantic Sea Farms has evolved, but are there are there brands, are there products specifically that people could keep an eye out in order to support what you're doing? Within Atlantic Sea Farms, like where if I wanted to if I want to be a consumer that's helping you out, what am, what am I looking for? So I would say um, in Whole Foods nationally, you can buy our fermented seaweed salad, our um, fermented seaweed kimchi, and now as of this week, basically a spicy gochujang seaweed salad. They're all in the fermented section. Um, so wherever you get your sauerkrauts and your kimchis usually. With Sprouts, which is a great retailer out West, they carry our burgers, they carry our uh, kelp cubes, which are for smoothies, and also ready-cut kelp. So we have a blueberry kelp cube, we have a cranberry kelp cube, we have a regular kelp cube. People put them in their smoothies every morning. And we're at about 2,000 stores, like I said, across the country. So check out our Where to Buy page and you can find out where we are. Those are the two big retailers. Also Wegmans is another big retailer. Moms, Mother's Markets, Fresh Market, Fresh Time. Um, so if you have any of those near you, go there. Otherwise, check out our Where to Buy page and we may be near you there too. Brianna, is there anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with before we uh, before we sign off? I don't think so. I just really appreciate you taking the time to highlight optimism in a time when hope feels sometimes hard to achieve. Um, and I think it's a great focus. Well, I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm a big believer in um, that businesses can do well and also do good. And if there's ever an example, um, we're pulling for you here in Maine. I know that. And I hope that everyone in the reach of our voices uh, feels the same way because what you're doing is is checking so many positive boxes. It's incredible. So um, Thank we're pulling you. I for you. That very much. No, and I know how busy your days are. So I, I really appreciate you fitting us in and uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much. As I've said many times before, entrepreneurs are, by definition, optimists. And it's inspiring to hear Brianna speak confidently about growing the seaweed harvest to 10 million pounds by 2030 and providing a steady, viable income stream for lobstermen. Her vision is also broad enough to see potential in other industries, like hemp or oysters, to replicate this model. And she has me intrigued now to go out and try more of the products she's described. Plant-based scallops and dog kelp jerky? Let's go. hope you enjoyed and were inspired by this blue sky conversation with Atlantic Sea Farm CEO, Brianna Warner. Please let us know how you think we're doing with this podcast by leaving us a review or sending feedback through our website at theoptimisminstitute.com. We'd really like to hear from you. Until next time, I'm the founder of the Optimism Institute and host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke. 
and I thank you for listening.